and sisters of Providence Church, greetings to you on this final Sunday in July. And just a reminder to everyone that while we face challenges as a country and in a time um, of uncertainty, uh, may we cling closely to the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. May we allow his peace to rule our hearts and may we uh, shed abroad uh, the confidence that we have, not in ourselves, but in the completed work of Jesus, that we have an imperishable inheritance laid up for us, for all those who've put their faith in Jesus, and as we live that out and delight in his grace, how attractive that is in a time uh, where so many are questioning and so many uh, hearts are open. You know, I think about um, how often I turn on the news and you read about some pastor or a well-known Christian who crashes and burns and uh, the damage is significant. And I just, uh, this past week, uh, maybe some of you have noticed that the Lord called home the great J.I. Packer right before his 94th birthday. And I draw attention to that just to remind us that we're on a long race, that there's a reason that the Christian life is compared to a way or to a race, uh, that there are no marks for just um, sprinting off the start line, uh, but rather what we're called to do is live long lives of faithfulness, uh, pointing others to Jesus and making a contribution um, as uh, we are uh, given the gifts that we're given. And J.I. Packer is one who I just think uh, not only with his great mind that he used to magnify the Lord, but in his Christ-like manner, in his patience, in his demeanor with other people. And may we look to him, uh, not, not uh, in the same sense as we look to God, but look at examples like J.I. Packer and to say, you know what, there are those who have steadily and faithfully preached to uh, preach Jesus and may we all model that so those things being said I turn things over to Pastor Ian who will call us to worship and we think about God and his word and how he'll shape us this morning well church good morning again this Lord's Day we have an opportunity to come to the one who preached these words in his earthly ministry he says come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you learn from me for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy my burden is light words of our savior the son of god eternally and uh let us sing with that gladness of ones who have the opportunity to come to him sincerely in repentance. There's a river that flows with mercy and love. 
it's a common question that one who is a believer in Jesus Christ to have is, do I have true saving faith? Do I have the kind of faith that God would accept in order for me to, to know him and to be secure in my relationship with him and where I'm going after I pass? And um, these are common questions, doubts even, uh, that we have of ourselves. And so uh, this morning we, we look to the saints of old who have given us so much of what we call the confessionals and, uh, and the catechisms and the things that we recite regularly. But this is to be confident, to be assured of the questions of our faith that we have as Christians. And so, again, the goal is joy. The goal is delight in God as we read these, these truths of our faith. And this is, comes from the Elden, London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. It's Article 14, On Saving Faith. And so let's recite together as a church from your living rooms, um, what uh, our faith, uh, what it means to have saving faith. And so let's look at these two statements. The grace of faith by which the elect are enabled to believe so that their souls are saved is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. Faith is ordinarily produced by the ministry of the Word, and by this same ministry and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed by God, faith is increased and strengthened. Statement two, by this faith, Christians believe to be true everything revealed in the word, recognizing it as the authority of God himself. They also perceive that the word is more excellent than every other writing and everything else in the world because it displays the glory of God in his attributes, the excellence of Christ in his nature and offices, and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in his activities and operations. So they are enabled to entrust their souls to the truth believed. And finally, they respond differently according to the content of each particular passage, obeying the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of Christ for this life and the one to come. But the principal acts of saving faith focuses uh, directly on Christ accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, eternal life by the virtue of the covenant of grace. Promise maker, promise keeper, you finish what you begin. Our provision through the desert, you see it through to the end. You see it through to the end. Lord, our God is, He's ever faithful, He never changes. To the ages, from this darkness, 
please join with me in prayer. Father God, we come before you this morning seeking to praise you and thank you and to honor you. Today we echo the words of David and praise you as our rock, our fortress, and our deliverer. You alone are our shield, our salvation, and our stronghold. This morning we call on you as a congregation knowing that you alone are worthy of praise. We thank you today that by your mercy, we have been able to gather together as a church family. Father God, I pray now that you will continue to direct our steps and to give us all wisdom as we confront daily, are confronted daily with decisions on how best to respond to the virus. We ask for wisdom as a church as we continue to plan for indoor worship services this fall. We also pray for wisdom for school administrators and leaders for government officials responsible for constructing appropriate responses to the virus, and we ask for clarity of thought for these men and women, and that their time to address these issues will be multiplied and wisdom will prevail. Father God, we thank you for the charge in Matthew 5.16 to let our light shine before others so that they can see the good works we do and give glory to you. We pray for the ministries of our church our children's ministry, our small groups ministry, our women and men's ministries, our local and international missions, our ministry to international students at LCCC, our ministry to singles and young adults and for high school and middle school students, as well as our desire to reach and serve in nursing homes. May we continue to be a lighthouse on the west side of Cleveland that reflects your light to others so that you will be glorified and your impact in this world will be magnified. I pray now too for specific intentions from our congregation. 
We pray specifically now for Bob and Margot Taylor, that Margot will continue to heal and recover from her eye surgeries, and that Bob will remain safe from the coronavirus and be able to receive visitors soon. We also pray for Jim and Cindy Whiteman, who both have family members with health concerns. We pray for their families and that Jim and Cindy will be able to share the gospel and point their family members to you. For all these requests and for our own silent intercessions, we pray, confident that the Holy Spirit will intercede for us according to the will of God. And we ask that he continue to conform our will to his own. For all these things, we pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. And now if you are able, would you please stand with me as I read from Luke chapter 5. I'll be reading from verse 12 to 26 in the uh, English Standard Version. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and there they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who alone can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But, to, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Steve and worship team. We continue to go forward in Luke's biography of Jesus, and we see that he's presented him not as any uh, mere person, as we have many biographies in the history of the world, but rather Luke presents this Jesus as the God-man. God's only begotten son through whom God is reconciling the world, right? God's chosen instrument, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, but also Jesus fully human. The great truth of the Christian faith that God doesn't just exist in concepts out in the ether, but rather he put himself on display in the person of his son who walked around the Mediterranean world and is reigning and raised today. So it's no surprise, right, that this Jesus, who is an extraordinary figure, is attracting a lot of people. So look again at 442, right? A lot of people were coming to him, pressing in on him. Then again in 5.1, the crowd was pressing in on him. In our own passage today, 5.15, there are great crowds gathering that Jesus is making a splash. And the question is, what's he going to do with this newfound popularity early in his ministry? So I don't know about you, but it's pretty clear to me that human beings don't handle this kind of attention very well. That oftentimes they become conceited and prideful, 
and certainly when you become famous and have a lot of crowds following you, that you don't pay attention to the people on the margins. And here we have a couple of examples in our passage today of Jesus being confronted really with helpless individuals. That the two individuals that have these serious problems are precisely those that would have seemingly nothing to offer Jesus. How would he treat them as they came to him for help? And wonderfully, that this, today's passage says that this Jesus, this God-man, this Lord of history, his ministry is deeply personal. I think that echoes down through the ages, right? Not just the teachings of Jesus, as good as they are, not that just the virtues and the ethics that come with him, not just the interest that he creates because of the splash that he's made on the scene, but rather that this Jesus has something for each person, something intimate for each individual that we must come to grips with. And here we have two such instances in the person of the leper and the person of the paralytic, that how would Jesus... This God-man approached these individuals, and I think that the virtues that Jesus shows, right, what is offered, what God offers through Jesus, are things that we need to pay attention to today. So firstly, uh, let's focus in on verses 12 to 16, and let's notice the compassion of Jesus. You know, leprosy is a nasty ailment. You know, interestingly, that both of the conditions that we see today, leprosy and and being paralyzed are two conditions that we don't have good cures for all these years later. They we say, well, we don't know any lepers here in Avon, but if you look at the map of leprosy, say it's very prevalent in parts of the world, places like India, Southeast Asia, say leprosy is a nasty ailment. And one of the reasons that it's so terrible is that it disfigures a person that it would begin to eat away at the flesh, and so you'd get it on different parts of your body, and some of your skin would be okay, and that this uh, leprous skin would begin to advance, there'd be open sores. You know, it's the kind of thing that people would do a double take, you know, that you're walking down the street, and you see a leprous person with this, uh, these festering sores, and you would kind of cringe as you looked at them. You know, maybe even shriek, maybe even take a step back, that kind of thing. That due to the nature of the illness, um, that there are all kinds of laws in the ancient world about how uh, to treat someone like this. And you know, you take up, you'll see some echoes of it here. But if you go back to the, lo the law of Moses back in Leviticus 13 and 14, you see all kinds of laws as to how to treat a leper. And this is because it was contagious. In other words, you wouldn't want to come in contact with any of those open sores. And so just to protect the assembly of God's people that the leper, you'll see, was to live in a place, in Leviticus 13, 46, live in a place outside the camp. Pure isolation, if you were, had this terrible condition. So not only was it incredibly painful, not only was it scary as your body and your limbs would begin to lose sensation and begin to fester away, but also this terrible social stigma to the point that you'd live in complete isolation. So sad it would be as if the leper, were told, would come near other people that they'd have to shout if there was a group they'd have to shout unclean unclean so if ever there's a condition that's sad to be pitied it'd be to be a leper in the ancient world or a leper at any time and i think this spills through in our own time we still hear of things like leper colonies that it's still all these years later it's a nasty ailment that causes severe disfigurement they created uh this kind of outcast uh you know mentality and it's just a, a terrible thing and as we paint this picture you'll see jesus here do something that i hope moves everyone who reads it i know maybe we're not moved that often or maybe we spend more time with emotions like anger and frustration these days but i'm talking here about something that ought to move us down at the gut level something so striking i hope we can put ourselves there <laughs> that this man who we're told is full of leprosy falls down at jesus's face feet and recognizes that he's the one who can help him and what does jesus do in verse 13 jesus stretched out his hand and he touches him. Say, so could you imagine being there that day? You think others around, they, they would have gasped. What did, what did Jesus, he just touched the leper, the one thing you don't do. You know, this man probably hadn't been touched or hugged in years. And Jesus comes to him, seeing this condition. He doesn't cringe. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't walk around the outside. He doesn't shun the man, but he does the unthinkable that he 
touches him, a great act of compassion. And you know, as I pause here, some are thinking, you say, well, what is this, you know, having to do with us? We don't really have these kinds of conditions uh, that often, or we don't think about them. And I'll say this in terms of an application here, is that I've really never met another person who's perfectly secure with their own body. Have you noticed that? That as you get to know people, say, I think it would open up and you know them on that kind of a personal level, that all of us have insecurities about our bodies. That we wish that maybe we're a bit taller, a bit shorter, or had, you know, a bit thicker, or a bit thinner, or wish that we were different in this area, different color eyes. Say, we're really kind of obsessed in that area. We're all insecure in our bodies. Loads of examples of people that constantly are, are working out or trying to put themselves on that display. Say, in, in some ways, we have very unhealthy relationships with our own bodies. Say, we can also think back to times, many of us. Say, even going all the way back to our school days, we say you're made fun of uh, for the way that you looked. Maybe there's been an accident that's created a problem for you that's embarrassing. Maybe it's just age that you can't do the things that you could, you once could do or that you've had some kind of uh, you know, accident. Whatever it would be, say, all of us, I think, have these kinds of relationships with our body. And for a long time, I think that this has been uh, a problem uh, in, in, our own, you know, in modern times. I think of two wonderful short stories for those who would want to read a bit about it. One from the 19th century, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a wonderful book, little short story called The Birthmark, about our obsession with physical imperfections and how that can lead us astray. Or now in the 1970s, John Updike, for all of his kind of strange views later in life, wrote a brilliant short story called From the Journal of a Leper. Both of those short stories illustrate our obsession with physical perfection. And what happens when we become so fixated on our bodies and so insecure with our bodies, it drives us over the edge. And I hope that we see today that when we have, not to the extreme of the leper, many of us say all of us some degree of insecurity in our bodies, that Jesus doesn't shun us or shame us, but he displays great compassion as he reaches out to the leper and stretches out his hand and he says, you know, I will look after you. As I'm thinking about this this week, I thought of Joni Erickson Tata. Many know that name, that back in 1967, I think she was about 17 years old, that uh, the young lady uh, dove in, had a terrible diving accident, became a quadriplegic, and she uh, only got through that. Now her testimony, some 53 years later, that uh, Joni would say she just uh, clung to her faith and recognized the grace that was in Jesus. Here's something she wrote on the 50th anniversary uh, of, of the accident. She's talking about her Christian friends. She said, they hooked me up to the spiritual veins. They hooked up their spiritual veins to mine, pumping compassion into my wounded soul. Calm means with, and passion means Christ's suffering. They literally were Christ with me in suffering. I wasn't their spiritual project. I was their friend. And Joni would go on to say many things over the years about her illness. I think it's a powerful testimony of this kind of thing, that even when our bodies let us down, that we're embarrassed, we have terrible accidents, we're a bit of a, ashamed of the way we look, that we find the grace and the compassion of Jesus to be sufficient. And you know, friends, I have to tell you that one of my fears in the time that we're in is how we're starting to see other human beings. And I don't want this point to be uh, taken out of context, but I, I think that we're, uh, on, on some levels, that we're starting to see other human beings more as uh, dirty, disease-carrying things rather than persons in the image of God to be loved and cared for. Now, I hope that no one hears me saying today that I think that we should, you know, um, ignore social distancing and go right up and touch each other and say, that's not really what I'm advocating. I just hope that one, one problem that emerges from the time that we're in isn't that we start to view each other as, as dirty and as uh, something less than human. What an opportunity we have, right, to show compassion. Say, all the way back in the early church when people were, were ill, that the Roman commentators, the Roman physician Galen, makes a comment to this extent. He says, well, we know you, we, we, we Romans, we don't really go by ill people, so we don't want to catch it. But the Christians, they take care of each other when they're ill. So I hope we see that this kind of compassion is a Christ-like virtue. 
So we might not say there are any physical lepers, but we know who the lepers are in our own communities, those outcasts, those who are kind of weird, maybe those who we cringe at or whatever it would be. Say, is that the way Jesus would handle such a thing? Say, not at all. What we see our Lord doing here is the striking thing of reaching out to the outcast and caring for them and comforting them even in the most terrible of situations, and may that too be a comfort for us today. Now, moreover, in addition to Jesus's show of compassion, that Jesus offers this leper cleansing. Now, why cleansing? I've already been over. I think that there was an element of this being a physical problem, a physical contagion, that is how it spread with these boils. But you'll see something else going on here, that this was rendered spiritually unclean, that leprosy was a category of spiritual uncleanliness. You say, what in the world's going on with that? Say, once again, if we go back to the book of Leviticus early on in the Bible, that God's people had parameters that God's very serious about the way he's worshipped, and more importantly is that he wanted his people to be distinct. And as you're reading the book of Leviticus, you say, well, why is it the Jews could eat this and they couldn't eat this, and why they had to avoid uh, these bodily fluids, but apparently these other bodily fluids were okay, or why could they not come in contact with a corpse, or if they did come in contact with a corpse, why are there stipulations about how to handle that? One answer to that is that God's people were to be distinct, that there were parameters as to how he was to be worshipped. Now, to be in a state of impurity, that is, say, a woman who's menstruating, or if there was a contact with a corpse, you say that in itself wasn't a sin. To be in a state of impurity wasn't a sin. But what was a problem, what was a sin, is when God's purity laws were violated. That is, that if we didn't take the proper measures in order to become spiritually clean, ritually clean, before we worship God in that way. So once again, the distinction isn't that if you touched a corpse or if you came in contact with some kind of bodily fluid, that that in itself was a sin. But if you didn't take the parameters of being distinct, that was the problem. You know, one thought on this, I think, is that a lot of the things that we read about in Leviticus, much like leprosy, is that those things that were declared spiritually unclean actually did have an element of death to them. So leprosy has been described as a kind of living death, as your body would slowly waste away. And the fact that a leper would have been spiritually unclean would have reminded the Israelite, oh right, there's life and death, and God is the author of life, and we have to prepare ourselves in these bodies of death before we come and see him. So I think it's about matters of life and death and about God being worshipped in a specific way. That's why leprosy, among other categories, were not just a hygiene issue, but a spiritual issue. And so this leper, because he was full of leprosy, you see, he was separated from God that he couldn't worship appropriately until he went through these stipulations, until the, the ailment became such that maybe it would subside and then he could rejoin the assembly going through the laws that we read about here. But he's separated from God. See, I don't know about you, but a lot of us, when we plow through life, we say we aren't unclean by the ceremonial law anymore, but we're certainly unclean or we feel unclean because of the way we lived our lives. You know, occasionally we'll meet people and just that the way that they, say, used their bodies many years ago, or for perhaps there's drug abuse or just the way that a person is taken advantage of them, they're struggling for the words, they're looking at their past, evaluating their life, and they'll say something like, I, I just feel so, so dirty. You say, well, that actually can be a good feeling, that conviction or a good thing, that conviction of sin. To say all of us before God we're spiritual outcasts. We're like this leper in, in a significant way, right? The leper separated from God, right? He's ceremonial, un, ceremonially unclean. He's in the living death. And all of us, before we've been touched by the grace of God, we're like a living death. So yeah, a lot of us, before we're Christians, we're walking around, we're biologically alive, the heart's pumping and the brain is thinking, but really we're dead people walking. That's what we understand, right? We're spiritually dead. We're spiritually on the outside until God quickens us. We read in places like Isaiah 64, 6, a striking line there in Isaiah, the great prophet. What's he say? He says, all of our righteous deeds, the best things that we can do, all of our generous actions, all of our kind words before a holy God are like what? Filthy rags. Say, so we have nothing to bring a holy God. 
especially when we think of our past. And what we really need deep down is a cleansing, not from physical leprosy, but from the condition of the heart. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, right? He says this, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying once again that the way a human works, a human being works, isn't from the outside in, right? That's the way of the world. Like you just change things out here, then it's going to come house seep into the inside. Jesus says no. He says the problem is the pollution of the human heart, that I don't want to listen to God, that my natural inclination is to rebel against him, that the problem is, as Calvin would say, in the crooks and crannies of my heart, the places where I rebel against God, say that's where I'm dirty, that's where I'm polluted, and out of my polluted heart comes all the things that I do that are of no avail for my salvation. And what's Jesus saying? You need to be cleansed. You need to be cleansed from your sin. You need a clean heart. You know, some maybe you say, well, I don't, I don't really feel dirty, and I certainly don't feel that the good things that I do are as filthy rags. And I just, I, I asked this question in the spirit of Francis Schaeffer. I remember, you know, I started in college ministry and would be at places like Baldwin Wallace and Cleveland State and be in conversations with a number of young men. And I just asked them as the conversation would be going about sin and this kind of thing. And the question that uh, Schaeffer would ask, or a variation on it, would be something like this. What if your life was a film for everyone to watch. That is, what if everything, like every moment of my life, for my case, the last 35 years, would be open to anyone to watch on film? See, every time I ask that question, answer is always the same. I would not want anyone to see that film. I would not want that to be available. Say, well, what does that tell us? That tells us that there are things in all of our lives that we're ashamed of, that we're embarrassed of, and I think many of us, even though we don't talk about this publicly, would say that actually those were filthy things before a holy God. And if I take just a moment to think about that, there is a cry deep down to be cleansed, to be washed anew. I love the way the old hymn says it, right? The vilest of sinners who truly believes that moment from Jesus, full pardon receives. Can you see it here in the story of the leper? Say, here's a spiritual outcast cut off from God. He's on the outside looking in until he's quickened, right? He's renewed and cleansed by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Friends, it's not just the leper in antiquity, that it's every person's story here. Jesus cleanses us. He offers cleansing, a fresh start. And I hope some here watching today, you say, you know what, that sounds really good. <laughs> yeah, the way I've been living my life, I've just been plowing through, and I feel really dirty. And no other person seems to be able to offer anything like purity, right? We're all in the same predicament. And I hope in this passage, you see not only the compassion of Jesus, but the offer here to be made pure. Again, not by trying a bit harder, but by the purity of Jesus himself. So Jesus shows compassion. Jesus offers us cleansing. And then in the second story, wonderfully, Jesus forgives our sins. Now from verse 17. Say this story uh, is one of the more memorable, I think, because of the nature of the action of these friends. But right away, we're gonna be introduced to a contrast. You'll see we're introduced for the first time in Luke's gospel to this group called the Pharisees in verse 17. Who are the Pharisees? These are the religious experts, the keepers of the law, right? Some, uh, that second phrase, right, the teachers of the law would be called the scribes in other parts of the Bible. But the Pharisees and the scribes were those who went through the Jewish law and made laws to protect those laws that they knew the laws very well. But they were skeptical of who Jesus is, right, that they're asking questions in their heart. The skeptics, the learned people, those knowledgeable of the law. And they're contrasted with this helpless man who's paralyzed and his friends. And these friends go through tremendous effort to come to the one person who can help, Jesus. Say Mark's gospel telling the same story says that there were crowds pressing in. That's why they're going through effort, right? They can't get their paralyzed friend through the door. So they go up to the roof and they start digging a hole in the first century Palestinian house. You say, you know how this was the way that they made the mud and the sticks. They start digging a hole in the roof in an effort to, can you imagine lowering their paralyzed friend down through the roof, probably with some kind of ropes. 
So next time you have friends over and they spill something on the carpet, you try not to be too mad, as you recall Luke chapter 5 and what these friends did to this person's house. But the point is, is I wish I was a bit more like these friends. Say, look at the effort they go through to get their friend before Jesus. Now, how many of us, you know, we say, well, I don't, I don't know, do you feel like going to church today? Or, you know, you think we ever should tell another person about Jesus? Or do you think that we, you know, really need to read our Bible at all or anything? Like, how many of us have that casual attitude towards the things of God and towards Jesus? I know I'm guilty of that, right? I got a lot of things on my mind. Is there really a sense of urgency about telling other people about Jesus? Do I view Jesus as the only hope? And these friends serve as an example on that front. There's only one person who can help. That's this Jesus. And we're going to go through great trouble to get our friend to encounter him and our great friend to experience what he offers. That's what these friends teach us. There's a sense of urgency. Only Jesus can help. And amazingly, this man lowered down through the roof. And Jesus, in verse 20, says a most unlikely thing. What's he say? Jesus doesn't immediately address this man's paralysis, but he addresses his heart. What's he say? Seeing the faith of the friends, right, lowering the friend, there's a great crowd there. Jesus utters this phrase. He says to the man, your sins are forgiven you. Can you imagine being there? Think if I'm the paralyzed man, I'm almost thinking this is cruel. Say, wait a second here, I, I, I can't walk, it's been some time, and you lower me through the roof, and what you declare, right, the great healer declares, is that my sins are forgiven? You can imagine the disciples say, is Jesus, maybe he's a bit confused or tired, after all, he's been on quite the teaching circuit here. What's he saying? But Jesus knows what he's doing. He goes right for the man's heart. That whatever we make, again, about our need for physical healing, we've talked about this in previous weeks, that it's way subordinate to the condition of our insides, that our spiritual healing is Jesus' concern. He wants to get us right. What good does it do to me if I live a long time and I don't know the Lord of the universe and I have no inheritance, right? What good does it do to heal my temporal body that's going to rot away anyway, even in a couple more decades? Say, what Jesus is after is the condition of this man's heart. He didn't make a mistake. And in so doing, he does what's called assuming a divine prerogative. You see, the Pharisees, again, the experts on the law, they're absolutely right when they charge Jesus with blasphemy. Say, what is blasphemy? It's making yourself equal to God. That's what they say. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees are correct in that matter. And I draw this out because you'll hear an objection in the Gospels, or some people say of the Gospels, they'll say, you know, do the Gospel writers really call Jesus God? I mean, or is this just something that the church invented much later? And here you have in Luke chapter 5, you say a very clear claim, both of Luke, the followers in the story, that they say this Jesus is God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, well, I forgive sins. I mean, the, the syllogism there is quite clear, right? Nobody forgives sins but God, and Jesus forgives sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. And he goes right for the heart, and that's the impression that's left on these people here. Now, some will say, you say, well, why does Jesus forgive his sins? Is this man's paralysis caused by his sin? And you know, it is, I think, tempting to think this way because we're formulaic in, in how we process the world. Many of us are. And I confront this a lot. Say, so Some people will say, well, you know what? Uh, my loved one is ill. Is this because of my sin? Or I did not get that job promotion. Is this because of my sin? Or I have this uh, serious medical condition. Is this because of my sin? And the, the answer to that is no, I think quite clearly. Because if that was the game, right? I mean, if that was the game to say God really is going to, to punish us each time we sin, say none of us could stand. If you read a place like Psalm 130, verse 3, right? Oh, Lord, if you kept a record of our iniquities, who could stand? That's exactly right. That game would be over very quickly. Even in Luke's own gospel, if you flip over to chapter 13, here's what is, we're, we're told. That there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What does Jesus say there? He says, no, that's not the game. You're not being punished because of your sin, but rather every person's called to repent. Furthermore, the proof that Jesus gives clearly separates the man's paralysis from his sins. And let's pay attention to that proof now in verse 22 to 24. That So Jesus says, you know, your sins are forgiven. They say, well, you can't say that because you're not God. Uh, this is blasphemous. And Jesus says, well, let me give you a proof. And he gives him a question. You say, you know what? That's how Jesus questions the questioner. He's a brilliant philosopher in his own right. And Jesus says, well, which is easier? Which do you think is easier to say something like your sins are forgiven, which can't immediately be detected, or to say rise and walk? Say, I think rise and walk's harder, right? Because if Jesus tells the man to rise and walk, a man who's been paralyzed for some time, and the man doesn't rise and walk, you say, then we know that he's a phony. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He tells the man to rise and walk, and immediately. How many times have we seen that in Luke's gospel already? As soon as the word of God comes from Jesus, right? As soon as Jesus speaks, what he says is accomplished. And the man rises and walks. And then why does Jesus do all this? Verse 24. And why does he do it this way? Why does he treat this person this way? Why does he de declare that his sins are forgiven? In verse 24, we get it. He says this that you, the people there, those of us who read this today, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. See, Jesus does this to communicate to everyone there, to everyone within earshot today, that he is who Luke and the Bible say he is, that he's God's unique son, that apocalyptic judge of Daniel 7, that son of man, the one who forgives our sins, the God-man, he did this, right? Not to put a display on and say, well, that's pretty impressive that he made this lame man, this paralyzed man walk. Wasn't that neat? That's not why Jesus does this. He does this to communicate to everyone else that he's God's chosen instrument to reconcile us to God. Friend, again, say it's nice to talk about the forgiveness of sins. You say, well, that's a nice concept, kind of detached from everything. No. Say, how do we know our sins are forgiven by Jesus? Because he put himself on display. That he himself was the sacrifice. I mean, you could even say, just as these friends lowered the paralytic man down, so God lowered his son down to die a bloody death. He's put on display. We know, we, we have the testimony here from Luke. What does Luke want us to know? That Jesus is God's son, the one who can forgive our sins and put us right with God. Say, for all those haunted by our past, what a refreshing passage this is. That we stand forgiven in Christ, not only our past sins, but for all those who put our trust in him, say all of our future sins, not that we ever try to sin, but all those times we let God down, that they're washed by the blood of Jesus. And we have the testimony. You know, I tell this last little story here because I think the, the three matters, compassion, cleansing, and forgiveness come together in this little story. But you imagine that you have a small child and there's a mud puddle in the backyard, and they have on their best Sunday clothes um, for church, and you tell that little child, you say, uh, you stay out of that mud puddle. And then that child runs directly into that mud puddle, ruining their clothes. You say, what does that child need? That child needs the compassion of a loving parent that reaches down and accommodates them, right? It's not that the child then pulls themselves up and takes care of themselves, but rather the compassion of a loving parent to reach down, to condescend down to their level. Then you need to get those clothes clean. And then you need to forgive that child for disobeying you. See how those three things are separated? The co compassion of descending down to our level, the cleansing, and the forgiveness. Say, all of us are like that child. God's given us so much, and he says, obey my commands. And what do we do? We plow through life, get ourselves very dirty, 
we cry for help, and wonderfully, Jesus is there, compassion coming down, stretching out his arm. I've got you. I love you. The compassion, the cleansing, I'll wipe you clean from your past. There's a new start, and you can be forgiven your transgressions. If you're not a Christian today, maybe you don't feel any of these things, certainly not dirty in, in any way, or you don't need to be forgiven. I, I do pray, though, that in the future, if you do, you're lying down at night and before your head hits the pillow and you just say, I have made a real mess of things and perhaps you've offended those in a serious way that are closest to you and you see there's no way out. I hope you remember this passage. Say, oh yeah, I remember hearing about Jesus who offers compassion and cleansing and forgiveness and that you would come to him. Others, maybe you are in that place that you've never surrendered your life to Christ, but you do. You say, I, I just, I, I'm, at, I'm at my end and I don't want to do it my own way anymore. And you need something new. You need a fresh start. You surrender your life to Jesus and say, Lord, I've made a mess of my life. I've done my best not to think about you. I, I've gone, I've plowed through my own way and I just feel so polluted and dirty with a long record of bad things uh, on, my, on my so-called permanent record. You say, Jesus avails for you as you come to him on his terms and for those of us who are christians say what wonderful things that again say not only are ours um, but i hope we can also see that as we surrender each day our lives to christ that the prayer is that these virtues of jesus shine through us that am i one who has compassion that loves the outsider that doesn't cringe at the so-called leper that sees people as children to be loved and not uh, just things to be stigmatized and of course I can't cleanse everyone but I can have the testimony of my own cleansing right my own time that I've gotten my so-called hands muddy but Jesus washed them clean and I certainly can extend forgiveness when people hurt me and all this to say is that these things we can maybe find in in certain degrees in other people. Yeah, some people are compassionate and some people are better at forgiving and some people might uh, recognize that the, you know, uh, their, their own pasts are worse than others. Yeah, that's true. That's, people do offer these things in degrees, but we'll never find them supremely in anyone but the Lord Jesus. So you can search the whole world round for the perfect person of compassion and the option for cleansing and go through religious ritual and look for forgiveness or tell ourselves we're not that bad. We can look the whole world round. We're never going to see what we've seen today, that in Jesus, he reaches down to us, he cleanses us, and he forgives us, and there's no one like him. May we boast in that truth, not in ourselves, but who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message um, that is the message of Luke here, that the God-man uh, who is on the teaching tour is also the one who shows us compassion, that he understands our predicament and our insecurities and being on the outside of you and reaches out his hand. Father, I know that there are some who are listening here. They say, well, maybe they've been touched physically, but they never feel like they're secure in your hands. And today we see the loving arms of Jesus reaching out, touching us in a special way by your spirit, Lord. May we come to him. And may we relish and delight in the fact that Jesus cleanses us of our past, that he forgives us and gives us new hope. May we pass that message along and uh, may it be life and light, as Steve said, life and light to those who need it today. In Christ's name, amen. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone. But in the costly wounds of love at the cross My worth is not in skill or name In win or lose, in pride or shame But in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross I rejoice in my redeemed 
Paul to the young Titus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Lord Jesus, thank you for your compassion, your cleansing purity, and your forgiveness of our sins. It is in you we trust. It is in you that we find our salvation. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon each of you until we shall meet again or until our blessed Savior Jesus Christ comes now and forevermore. Amen. My fears lie.